When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Italian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Gary Milligan, your host. Today we'll be talking to Eva del Soldato, the author of Early Modern Aristotle on the Making and Unmaking of Authority, which was published by the University of Pennsylvania Press in 2020. Professor del Soldato is Associate Professor of Romance Languages at the University of Pennsylvania. She also serves as the Executive Secretary of the American Association of Italian Studies. She has received many fellowships, including those from the Scuola Normale Superiore, Harvard's Villitati, the Herzog August Bibliothek, the Huntington Library, and the University of Warwick, where she was a Marie Curie Fellow. In addition to the book we are discussing today, she has published a monograph on Simone Porzio, the 16th century Italian philosopher, a translation of Bessarion's In Columniatorum Platonis, and has co-edited co-edited the volume City Court Academy Language Choice in Early Modern Italy. Ava, welcome. I'm truly delighted to speak with you today. Thank you, Jerry. It's a real, pre- it's a real pleasure for me as well. Great. Thanks for, thanks for taking the time out to speak with me. So your book, as the title, or as, rather as the subtitle suggests, looks at the practice of establishing or challenging Aristotle's authority in the early modern period. And I I really found it informative for my own work on women in the Renaissance, which I do hope we'll get to in a bit. But before we dive into your book and the early modern period, it might be helpful if you would just briefly explain how and to what extent Aristotle's authority had been established in the Middle Ages. Thank you so much. This is indeed a great question. So it... It's quite fascinating because uh, in the uh, ancient period, uh, uh, Aristotle was mostly considered a student of Plato, and uh, he was read by many ancient interpreters precisely according to this perspective. And then uh, instead, during the Middle Ages, he raised as the main authority, mostly because of the institutional role that he came to cover in the university milieu. That didn't happen by chance. That happened because uh, Aristotle was the perfect author for university, for teaching, for pedagogy. Why? Because Aristotle uh, had written basically about everything. So he had an encyclopedia that could be useful precisely for these pedagogical purposes. And when he was writing these treatises, that again, we should enter in the story of the Aristotelian corpus, but let's call them uh, treatises. Um, when it, these treatises indeed were written according uh, 
uh, to a structure that was uh, uh, friend, uh, friendly for teaching. It was working very well in a pedagogical settings, precisely because they were treatises, they were offering answers. Unlike Plato, for example, that having written dialogues, which were often uh, without any real resolution at the end, weren't so suitable for university teaching and teaching in general. And uh, all these uh, aspects made him uh, therefore perfect uh, to be the uh, authority of reference in that milieu and uh, consequently establish him as uh, the philosopher par excellence. It's not by chance that when we call off, uh, when, we, when we discuss Aristotle, when we, we speak about Aristotle, he's the philosopher in capital P. And this is because he was basically the handbook uh, for any kind of uh, higher instruction. At, at the same time, of course, these... Uh, um, reception of Aristotle in the Middle Ages was also mediated by the fact that we were in a Christian context and immediately some accommodations and manipulation were needed in order to make this pagan philosopher suitable also in uh, such a different uh, context. But uh, that would not change in the Renaissance. What will change in the Renaissance indeed will be the fact that other philosophers will be rediscovered and the approach itself mm. on uh, the Aristotelian text uh, will change. Mm. So, um, it's so interesting to think of his popularity based on, a st- on it sounds like uh, you're suggesting on a style, cho- uh, well, the, a difference in style versus, let's say, Plato's dialogues. Um, it, it, yeah. How important it was for pedagogy. Yeah, absolutely. And that is why there was this... Uh, extensive program in translating the Corpus Aristotelicum from Greek or from Arab and Hebrew into Latin, precisely because there was demand for this kind of text. It is interesting that instead, during the Middle Ages, we basically had no Plato. We only had two full treatises, full two two works by Plato translated into Latin, and two which were translated partially, but otherwise very little. And Plato was known mostly through mediation of Neoplatonic authors or through St. Augustine, while instead, in the case of Aristotle, we really could have uh, his entire corpus. Mm. You know, the, the, your book so wonderfully addresses the question of, as, as we mentioned, authority and how, as you, you call him, the philosopher with the capital P, um, <laughs> and how he either retains the capital P or, or it gets maybe the capital P gets challenged. Uh, what drew you to focus on this question of authority? Uh, that, that's a great question. Well, on the capital P. I... <laughs> of course. Of course. <laughs> well, you know, it, I, I will give you this reply. It was really a matter of connecting the dots. Uh, I was working uh, for a long time in European libraries, collecting great materials about the Aristotelian tradition in the early modern period. And I was wondering, well, maybe I can publish articles about this subject and so on, while instead of at one point, it occurred to me that all these texts I was collecting really had the fil rouge uh, that was... Uh, uh, involving them all. And that problem was the fact that uh, 
Aristotle as an authority was either challenged or, def- or defended in these writings. So the fact that uh, Aristotle has to, de- to be defended uh, and presented as a good Christian or the fact that Aristotle uh, is challenged precisely because, no, he's not a Christian, so he's dangerous for us, and so on. Why so much contention for a guy who died so many centuries ago? Mm. So what what interested me really was why there was such a heated debate about defending the good reputation or attacking and destroying the reputation of this individual. There have been excellent studies like those by Craig Martin about the fact that in the early modern period, we are witnessing an attempt of subverting uh, the authority of Aristotle. And I was interested in putting together the two sides of the question. While on one side, we want to subvert Aristotle after he served uh, the needs of uh, several uh, groups for such a long time, And at the same time, why do we want to protect this authority and which agendas are are at play when this happens? Well, you know, I think in the introduction of the book, you really nicely lay out how authority can make us think of these questions beyond even Aristotle and um, what it means to have an authority and how it suits these agendas of of the writers. It it really is such a fascinating approach. And, 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 you know, the way you do it in, at least in the first three chapters is to discuss this genre, um, which I have to admit as not as, as I am not a philosopher uh, of the comparatio is something that I, I found new to, not somewhat new to me. I mean, I knew it existed, but certainly not to the extent in which uh, you present. So in, in the first three chapters, you, you, you tell us about this comparatio genre. So why don't you explain what that is, particularly in the Greek origin that you lay out in chapter one. Yeah, thank you. As I was mentioning before, uh, in the ancient period, uh, Aristotle was uh, considered mostly a student of Plato. And uh, this relationship between uh, the two philosophers led uh, uh, many thinkers to consider Plato to consider Plato and Aristotle in perfect agreement, even when their writings were showing us something different. The solution that was offered in order to reconcile the two authors was to say that while Plato was a theologian and therefore discussing divine realities, Aristotle was instead the natural philosopher discussing uh, the sublunar world. So in this way, there was no conflict at all. They were simply offering complementary views of the world. And at the same time, it was possible even to claim that there were imperfect agreement. Again, that happened for practical reasons. In schools of philosophy, it was useful to rely on someone like Aristotle writing in such a clear way, clearer than Plato, because again, dialogues are often obscures. And it it was considered like a sort of Plato for dummies, (laughs) I I might say, in the sense that he really represented a gateway for younger scholars before approaching the deep the deep truths of the Platonic philosophy. So those were the origins of the genre in the sense that these people teaching in the ancient schools of philosophy 
one in Greece wanted to show the agreement of the two philosophers for pedagogical purposes. Could, could you then possibly, course, I'm sorry to interrupt, but would you mind like laying out what it might, what one of these might look like? Because this is where I'm, I'm curious. Is it a, you said Plato for dummies, but is it, is it a, now let me explain Plato, now let me explain Aristotle side by side, or I have, because I haven't seen these two. So the, 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 the thing is basically that Aristotle was praised for his logical uh, abilities, while instead uh, it, these, those were aspect missing in, uh, considered missing instead um, in uh, Platonic works. And at the same time, the fact that Aristotle discussed lower realities uh, was useful precisely because these lower realities were seen as opening a path to understand the supra the, the, the supralunar divine realities and the, the the text in themselves you know we mostly have fragments mm-hmm. we do not have uh, entire works that put these things in display we we have mostly the writings of simplicius and the writings of simplicius are the most useful uh, testimony probably of this kind of approach and which wasn't initiated by him in any case. We we know that Porphyry, for example, wrote uh, two works which are both lost, completely lost, uh, on the, the agreement of uh, uh, Plato and Aristotle. But in the writings of Simplicius, who was an Aristotelian commentator, mm-hmm. um, we find the real... Um, attempt of demonstrating that these two authors could seem to disagree uh, at an exterior view, but that uh, at the deeper level were instead in agreement, precisely because uh, they were occupying different levels of the uh, realities and therefore weren't really conflicting on something. They were simply speaking of different things. And uh, Simplicius really says these things in his comment in his commentaries on uh, uh, Aristotle works. And, and Simplicius is in fact the most uh, influential uh, um, source also for many Renaissance authors. But before uh, arriving to the Renaissance, we have to go through the treatment uh, of uh, uh, the comparatio which is offered uh, during the Byzantine period. So as you can see, there is a Greek pattern in this story. Mm -hmm. And of course, in the Byzantine period, we have uh, a triangulation between Plato, Aristotle, and Christianity. So the problem is who is uh, the author who is most suitable uh, to uh, support uh, Christian religion. And, uh, the, the re- and in that case, the reply is not in favor of Aristotle. Uh, Plato is still considered the most uh, um, pious philosopher. Plato is considered the philosopher that went closer to the Christian truth. So in many of these uh, Byzantine, uh, later Greek authors, we, we find instead uh, Plato having the upper hand on Aristotle. And then what happened? That these Greeks ca- uh, uh, came uh, to Italy for the Council of Ferrara Florence. And in that moment, we have uh, a clash of words between uh, a Latin word that has been uh, until that moment dominated uh, basically by the Aristotelian philosophy in all uh, its uh, um, 
treatments, including, uh, uh, of course, uh, the one by Thomas Aquinas and all the scholastics. And on the other side, this Greek philosopher that until that moment have looked upon uh, Plato like the the philosopher of reference. But when these Greeks arrived, they don't only bring their Platonic expertise, they only... They, they, they also brought, indeed, the, the idea of using this genre, the comparatio between the two mm-hmm. philosophers, in order to prove which one between the two could be the best ally for Christian religion. And this is when we start with, uh, I would say, the Latin phase of the use of the comparatio. That happened uh, precisely at the time of the Council of Ferrara Florence, when Gemisto Plato uh, wrote in Greek a comparatio between Plato and Aristotle, aimed at proving that Aristotle was uh, a liability for Christian religion, while instead Plato was uh, its best defender in philosophical terms. This was so fascinating. It was a great moment in your book when, of course, you start connecting the dots of um, not only the the comparatio of Plato, well, Platonic versus Aristotelian thought, but also the way they align with political interests, uh, the Byzantine versus the Latin church. And I I found that really compelling. Uh, As we move to chapter two, you you know, you trace this comparatio, I, I guess, somewhat chronologically. And I wonder if there are some topics that stand out to you in the debate over authority, particularly uh, given the importance of Neoplatonism to literary texts of the period. I mean, this, I'm going to be biased here because here I have to admit, I can't help but think of the way the only the only comparatio that I myself have studied, the only reason this has come to my attention why I've studied is in the Questione della Donna, where Plato and Aristotle are always held up sort of side by side in battle. And I'm wondering, um, you, you do mention, you know, you're really worried about or focusing on authority rather than the content of the of the debate, but I'm curious if there's anything that stood out to you during this period. Yeah, you're, you know, first of all, one consideration is that uh, I tried to limit my attention to texts which were actual declare comparaciones, no? Mm. That were described by their authors in terms of comparaciones, because otherwise, if we think about texts in which Plato and Aristotle are put uh, into collision or tentatively in, in agreement, of course, we would need to investigate the entire philosophical corpus mm. um, from the antiquity until our days in many respects. So that, that is why certain texts didn't enter in the book. Um, but you are absolutely right uh, that uh, basically this kind of comparative approach is welcomed once uh, it is made available in a number of other texts. And, and in, in a certain way, these, compa- these comparaciones are instrumental in the development of texts like the treatises on love or treatises on beauty or those on uh, the querelle de femme for the simple fact that the main authority in those treatises is, is normally Plato. And uh, the comparaciones were instead instrumental in bringing Plato back after this uh, uh, underground life he had during uh, the Middle Ages. So there is also this kind of connection 
between uh, comparaciones and texts like treatises on love, beauty, and uh, women that uh, uh, flourish, especially in the 16th century, precisely because it was thanks to the comparaciones that uh, Plato uh, was able uh, to re-enter in many ways, uh, um, is, uh, to regain in many ways his legitimate role as a uh, uh, co-authority of reference in uh, the early modern period. Uh, and, and it's not by chance that uh, in the moment in which we have the first comparaciones, we also have uh, a new wave uh, or reliable translations uh, of uh, uh, Platonic works, even though we cannot forget, uh, even in this context, that the Plato, which is presented by the comparaciones, and uh, the Plato, which is interpreted and translated, is not the real one. Is in fact an author that has been mediated through a Neoplatonic filter precisely because he has to serve the agenda of the time. Mm-hmm. You know, also interesting is I, I think about these comparaciones. The, the authors that you were mentioning are sometimes the very same authors that will then write treatises that I'm more familiar with and that other you know, listeners might be more familiar with on love or et cetera. Um, Vincenzo Maggi. I mean, I'm thinking about some of the, yeah, right, that um, they, they author both of them. And so, of course, the bleeding in between these, uh, among these these texts is, is really fascinating. So chapter three really highlights the authority of Aristotle in the universities themselves, um, primarily during the 16th century. And I have to say, it's very impressive. You discuss such a number of unpublished and unstudied sources, um, and, and and you know, referring to your previous comment, there I can't imagine you adding any more primary sources. So of course you couldn't just consider things outside this genre. I I found this chapter in particular very helpful because I've always been a bit unclear about how Plato and Aristotle were negotiated within the university curriculum. I mean, we we know the introduction of Plato, and we know that this happens, but. Uh, those of us that haven't studied it maybe as closely as you, it's always been a bit muddy for me. So maybe you could explain the various ways that the comparatio reveal the struggle for authority within the universities. Oh, yeah. Let, let, let me start by saying that this was probably my favorite chapter to write <laughs> in many ways, because it allowed me to spend time in Milan at the Biblioteca Ambrosiana that I absolutely cherish. A wonderful so, place. Yes. Oh, yes. I completely yes. agree. Uh, so so th- th- that was, you know, one of the upside of doing this kind of research. And, and again, you can think that these uh, university Aristotelian texts are extremely dull, but uh, it's not real. And this is what I've tried to show in this chapter. Uh, so normally when there have been uh, discussions about the presence of Plato, in uh, the early modern period, uh, Plato was uh, um, found uh, in these texts which we were mentioning before about love, about beauty, about the question of women, in texts written in any case in, uh, in a cartly context. Or otherwise, we have texts that we instead were uh, written and cultivated in a religious context, and some of them are, the, are at the center of chapter two in my book. But uh, Plato in the universities has always been a more complicated uh, issue. 
very little uh, had been written about that. It looked like there weren't so many sources. So, you know, uh, the assumption was, well, maybe there's there wasn't really Plato in the universities. And in a sense, it's true, because if we look uh, at the chair of Platonism, which were activated uh, in during the 16th century, we will find very few of them. Um, but, uh, uh, and almost all, uh, basically all in Italy also. But at the same time, if we look at the contents of uh, Aristotelian teaching in the same period, we will realize that Plato is indeed very present. And is not present in an accidental way, but there is a, a deliberate pedagogical program behind it. So the first one to, to make a suggestion about using uh, Plato for uh, pedagogical purposes was uh, this French philosopher, very interesting, uh, scholar Jacques Lefebvre de Taple. And for a few uh, decades, nothing really happened. We are at the very beginning of the 16th century. And then uh, in uh, around 1540, uh, this Milanese philosopher, Francesco Vimercato, in France, so evidently he realized there was. Uh, 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 an interest, an appetite for Plato in the French court, uh, while teaching uh, um, in uh, French universities, decides to incorporate uh, Plato as part of his lessons. The king is impressed, Francis I. We know that many people uh, in uh, Francis court were very much uh, interested in Plato. Probably the Mercato also has interest in uh, uh, having a career in obtaining an upgrade, a better salary, and so on. And But at the same time, he also is a very skilled philologist and a very capable philosopher. So he put together all these things and he started using regularly Plato in his teaching, in spite of not being a professor of Platonism. So his method... In, of teaching is precisely by explaining Aristotle, constantly comparing him with Plato. There's not really a need to show that they are in agreement or in disagreement, but it's most of all important to show how different they are on the basis of their text. And what happens with this kind of approach? We, we have... Um, and Vimercato is the first one also to uh, have this kind of perspective, a secularization of uh, the Aristotelian teaching, because uh, it's true that in the moment in which you compare Plato and Aristotle, there will be always this kind of unbalance. Plato will always appear the theologian when compared to Aristotle. And so Vimercato's reaction also in order to defend Aristotle, that after all was the author thanks to whom he received the salary, is to totally diffuse these theological motives and to discuss philosophy just as philosophy without any kind of interference from the theological sphere. This is important also because of the context in which Vimercato is working. There is uh, Petrus Ramos uh, uh, plotting against Aristotle uh, at the very same time. But at the same, uh, in, the, in this very same moment, this kind of approach developed by Vimercato finds, uh, find, finds other teachers of philosophy, other professors, other magistri who are interested in teaching uh, uh, 
Aristotle via comparison with Plato. And of course, not everyone is offering uh, the same solutions. Of course, uh, um, many of these professors have a very uh, personal and individual views. But at the same time, the fact is that uh, Plato is incorporated into the university teaching, even uh, when his presence is not necessarily institutionalized. When we have Professor uh, teaching Plato in an institutionalized form, therefore having a chair of Platonism, aside from the fact that this chair will be always short-lived, poorly paid, uh, the course will be taught uh, on Sunday, you know, in DFSTivo, so a lower rank kind of teaching, nonetheless, the need to adopt a strategy in order to speak of Plato, and for the most part, what they will do will be being extremely diplomatic against uh, about Aristotle. They will not attack Aristotle. They will try to be uh, as diplomatic as possible. Why? Because at the, in those very years, at the end of uh, uh, the 16th century, there was the case of Francesco Patrizzi in Rome, who had a apparently uh, important chair of Platonism, but because uh, of his attacks against uh, Aristotle and uh, also because of his, uh, let's say, revolutionary new ideas uh, in terms of philosophy or reference for uh, uh, the Christianity, will uh, we, we basically bring uh, the chair of Platonism in Rome to an end. I mean, I found this this moment. Well, you, you've said so many things. I want to unpack here, but this this moment really important um, to think about because academics love to talk about academic freedom, uh, even today. And of course, this has become such a a real issue as our curricula is is actually on the you know on the chopping block at the legislative congressional level um, with things like critical race theory and so on. But I I think this moment's really interesting because. You point to Francesco Petrizzi, who teaches Aristotle in a certain way, and therefore, and losing his chair as sort of becoming the example that the other faculty, the other professors, will then point to as why they, or at least your suggestion is, I believe, why they will teach Aristotle and Plato in a different way. Um, and it's you know, in, in order to, as you say, I think in, in your book, to retain their precarious chairs. I mean, it's sort of a, a job security coping mechanism, it seems, at least. Um, it was really fascinating. I don't know if you want to speak more to that or if maybe you've said, said it all, but that was really an interesting Oh, no, for, for, for sure. Patrizia becomes the negative example. It's fascinating that after Patrizia, we have all these professors teaching Platonism, who are extremely prudent when they're expressing their uh, allegiance uh, uh, for Plato. They do it uh, always uh, by saying, yes, uh, Plato is great, but also Aristotle was a good guy. They, they, they always make sure to point out that they have no bias against uh, uh, Aristotle. And this was precisely because Patrizia had been uh, so vicious in his attacks. Uh, he wrote uh, a work uh, 
um, very extensive work uh, in, in which he's trying to demolish the reputation of Aristotle by showing that he stole all his ideas, he was not original at all. He, he embraced all those conspiracy theories which were ongoing about uh, Aristotle uh, myth as uh, the most important philosopher, basically. And, and that's uh, something that uh, is not uh, met with appreciation. At the same time, Patrizia's also idiosyncratic ideas. It's not simply a platonic philosopher. His, uh, his philosophy is really embracing all pre-Socratic uh, authors uh, and uh, different kind of approaches to nature and uh, metaphysics. But uh, the problem is that uh, by being so vicious against Aristotle, he basically rejects what has been the traditional uh, authority of, of universities of, of, at that very moment. So the, the, the linguistic strategies that you find employed in these courses, Totem Pisa, for example, immediately after the Patrizia Fair are, are extremely interesting, in my opinion. Because, of course, many of these people are Platonists at heart, but mm-hmm. at the same time, they are compelled to do not destroy Aristotle's authority if they want to maintain their roles. Well, you know, I wonder if you want to draw a line here too, because especially when you're looking at when we're talking about, I believe speaking about the mid-16th towards the late 16th century. And if, if I mean, I can't remember exactly because I don't have your book in front of me, but the, uh, and, and there's also many authors that, that you discuss, but what, I wonder if you want to draw a line here to what becomes really a, a, a culture of dissimulation in Italy anyway, or among the core. I mean, this makes, I, I just spoke with uh, Paolo Ugolini about her, her discussion of people critiquing the court and how, you know, specifically this, what this concern with how one critiques the benefactor or the prince, right? Um, in a time, especially in a time of absolutism, when there becomes, as you mentioned, sort of linguistic acrobatics. And also the, the, you mentioned the, the term prudence. While there's a prudence while teaching, of course, this, is, this term prudence becomes so important as we turn to the late 16th century. I don't know if you're seeing a cultural change more generally, or if if, if, I mean, if it's just Frances, uh, Francesco Patrizzi's sort of counterexample as the one that they... Well, you know, it, it's fascinating because Aristotelian philosophers, uh, uh, Aristotelian professors, were actually in a very powerful position. Uh, just to mention an example, uh, at the beginning of the 16th century, uh, the big problem was uh, the immortality of the soul. So, and, and, oh my God, we cannot discuss these things when we are speaking about these things in the university. We always need to have a disclaimer about fate. If you arrive at the end of the 16th century, this is not a problem anymore. <laughs> Philosophers can discuss about the mortality of the soul, the mortality of the soul in their courses without, without being bothered. Uh, precisely because at the end of the day, as a, as a lobby, as you, let's use this expression, they were strong enough uh, to face uh, any kind of external interference about the contents of uh, their teaching, even on 
a hot, apparently hot topic like this one, which which was putting Aristotle in direct collision uh, with the faith. But the problem was precisely that these uh, philosophers were happy to present uh, Aristotle as distant as they could from faith. Because in the moment in which it's clear, it's declared, it's transparent that Aristotle cannot get along with faith, there's there's nothing to discuss there. (laughs) We can all get along with our lives. We have just made this distinction and there's no need to have any kind of external interference. But the problem with Plato was precisely that uh, his philosophy was promoted uh, as a uh, a sort of theology, Plato was presented like the author who went closer to the Christian truth. We have all this tradition of the Prisca Theologia and so on. So Plato was uh, paradoxically, by being pious, more dangerous than Aristotle, precisely because he was seen like someone that could potentially bring to heresy. We have this anecdote that I also put in my book, but it's very famous and is repeated many times, about uh, Cardinal Bellarmino, who was famous for uh, his exchange with uh, Galileo and so on, that while discussing with the Pope about uh, the opportunity of having a platonic chair, says, no, 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 I don't want to have uh, nothing to do with Plato because Plato is dangerous, is so close, is so is dangerously too similar to Christian faith. So (laughs) this is the real short circuit, in my opinion. The Aristotelian professor had been able to prove that uh, there could be the right distance between uh, uh, Aristotle and faith. Many Jesuit philosophers embrace this approach, while instead in the case of Plato is the fact that uh, his philosophy is seen too dangerously similar to Christian faith. And so this is uh, uh, why uh, we, we, we have these philosophers teaching Platonism within universities that need to be careful about what they're saying because they don't want to describe Plato as a sort of uh, a Christian antiliteram on one side. And at the, on the other side, in the moment in which they compare Plato with Aristotle, and that was something that happens often uh, in many of the courses they teach, they don't want to be too antagonistic because they realize who is uh, detaining the power in the institution they're working. So we, we, we have this situation in which uh, Aristotelian professors can basically say whatever they want and they are not going to pay any particular price. Uh, but at the same time, we have instead uh, these uh, uh, magistri who are in a much weaker uh, position that really need to pay attention because the philosopher they are handling with is explosive precisely because of his piety. It's a sort of paradox here. It it, it is a paradox. And I think you've just made your case of why authority is is such a great lens through which to look at these works. I mean, fantastic. And I do want you to write um, for the Chronicle on um, (laughs) academic freedom next, please. (laughs) I I mean, what what an interesting um, just way to consider this. I, I Anyway, I, 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 we have to move on, but I, I'm just really thrilled to hear that explanation. I have to say that 
you know, I was really appreciating that explanation of the danger of teaching Platonism precisely because it is so close to Christianity. But that said, it's the next two chapters where I really had the most fun. I, I loved chapter four. It was a lot of fun. It Maybe this, again, is my literature bias, but <laughs> you, you know, you hear it's in chapter four where you discuss various legends uh, about Aristotle and how they're manipulated by writers. And they include that Aristotle was a Jew, that Aristotle was a Spaniard, that Plato and or Aristotle insulted Moses. Fascinating. And finally, that Aristotle was actually a papist. So I have to say I was generally unaware of these texts. Uh, I had heard, you know, maybe of the, 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 some of the, uh, you know, vaguely some of the, the rumors Aristotle had been considered a Jew or something. But I, I found them all fascinating and really sometimes outrageous, particularly a couple of your authors. Um, maybe do you want to highlight the way that these stories were mobilized by authors to suit their own agendas? And I'm also really curious if you were surprised by anything that you found. Oh yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah, uh, the, the the Jew Aristotle and Aristotle as a Spaniard were were a lot of fun, of course. <laughs> the Jewish Aristotle uh, was incredible because uh, uh, the way this uh, legend arrived in, in the Latin world, uh, it it was a different. So it, it's an interesting legend because it has uh, uh, different genealogies. Uh, when it appears uh, in the Jewish world, of course, is out of interest to show that uh, uh, Aristotle was uh, uh, the, the, the most important philosopher, of course, was connected to Jewish wisdom, and therefore there is a, a very... Um, there is a strong uh, identitarian interest uh, in uh, supporting the legend. But when uh, the legend arrives uh, in the Christian world, it doesn't arrive uh, through uh, the Jewish sources, fascinating enough, Mm -hmm. but uh, it arrives because of a typo in a 15th century book and an incunable because of uh, a comma which is misplaced. And because of this misplaced comma, uh, many authors, including Marsilio Ficino, read in that book that, yes, Aristotle was indeed a Jew. So we don't know, was did he convert or was he born Jew? <laughs> there are many um, responses also to this kind of question, of course. And the most fascinating case uh, uh, I've met uh, in terms of the circulation of the legend was the one uh, in uh, Fortunio Liceti. It's the most fascinating because we are well into the 17th century, first of all. We are in a moment in which the legend had been debunked at least uh, in uh, uh, the Jewish context, uh, because of Azariah de Rossi. Uh, but F- F- Liceti is so desperate to save the reputation of Aristotle that at that point is actually declining, that at that point is really suffering blows um, for a number of reasons. Uh, new philosophies uh, are emerging, uh, is so desperate that uh, his uh, reaction in order to save the philosopher and uh, the philosopher's soul is to make of him a monotheist. Because basically by describing uh, Aristotle as a Jew, he has uh, the perfect response uh, 
uh, in term, in, which is also uh, in respectful of chronology, to prove that uh, Aristotle uh, wasn't a Christian just uh, for uh, reasons uh, of uh, time, because he wasn't born at the right moment, but otherwise it would have been. So this is fascinating, because we think that... Uh, we had these Aristotelian philosophers like Vimercato who were trying to secularize Aristotle as much as possible. And yet, one century after, we have this individual trying instead to do the opposite, uh, again, to save Aristotle's authority. It's fascinating how different strategies can be at play in order to obtain the same goal. But what I found interesting about this legend was that once Liceti put it back on the radar, we have, uh, again, Jewish authors that uh, decided to incorporate it uh, in their writing. So it's an interesting kind of exchange between one side or another, precisely because there was a convenience for both parties in uh, supporting the reality of this legend. And it's one of those fascinating stories in which you see that philologists are listened to when there is uh, a need to listen to them. <laughs> but. <Yeah. laughs> As long as uh, a legend, a forgery is useful, we, we do not want to listen uh, to, to, to philologists. So th that is what I found very fascinating about this story. Uh, and, and again, I'm speaking of an example that span over centuries, like the case of uh, the proverb about Moses. The final example in the chapter, you that you mentioned is this uh, story about uh, Aristotle as a papist. That is not something that has uh, such uh, a long uh, and glorious story. Uh, mm. We are speaking instead of a set of booklets written by this uh, German Jesuit. And when I found them working in Wolfenbüttel and Munich, I found them so entertaining. <laughs> they were absolutely amazing, printed on this uh, poor quality paper uh, and yet so charming. And what I love about those uh, books in which Aristotle, in a fiction, is presented as a papist because he came back from the netherworld and he decided that the only true faith is only in Germany and that the only true faith can be only the Roman faith. Uh, is that there were a serial. So we have Aristotle, uh, this converted Aristotle, uh, living several adventures and trying to convert uh, Lutherans and Calvinists on different set of matters. Uh, it's really incredible. It's a, it's a sort of Nancy Drew. I don't know, maybe I'm not using the right <laughs> pop reference. But in any case, it's fascinating that uh, he has this sort of franchising basically uh, developing. And the fact that uh, this happens meant that evidently it worked. And it meant that uh, in the German context, in which both Catholics and Protestants recognize Aristotle as an authority, that was why he was chosen as a bridge between uh, these two parties, which were otherwise in conflict. I, I have to say this, um, if, if I've got the right, moment here this man's logic was the one i found so strange because i his claim was that aristotle would 
be a papist because the uh, Calvin and Luther were such bad people, but the but the Catholic Church actually had ceremony. I can't remember recall now if this is the right if this is there are the same pamphlets. But I it was so strange, and I thought, does that work? Did, did this work? I mean, it, but uh, but it really was an entertaining chapter. I mean, I, I think I guess this is something that you were unaware of before you started your. Oh, yeah. So the the name of this Jesuit, Melchior Corneus, was known when speaking about philosophy of science, uh, about the reception of uh, the ideas of Galileo. And it's not by chance that uh, he... Uh, Corneus retires in the following chapter when I'm discussing Galileo. But uh, these set of treatises weren't uh, really studied. They've been completely ignored by scholarship. So it was uh, very entertaining for me to work uh, uh, with them. But yes, what you were mentioning before about uh, all these arguments uh, he's presenting in order to support uh, Christian faith, uh, the Catholic faith above uh, Protestant faith, both uh, uh, Lutherans and Calvinists. It's, it's part of ongoing debates because uh, uh, the idea was, and this was taken by uh, other authors, of course, but uh, that the uh, tradition and ceremonies and all the, these things that appear exterior to us uh, were instead those uh, uh, decisive to show the superiority of uh, the Church of Rome. So it, 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 it can sound paradoxical to us, especially if if we think about the perception of religion we have nowadays, but it was really an argument that uh, had uh, a lot of weight in the time of uh, uh, Corneus. Well, he he was a great way to conclude that chapter. I I quite enjoyed it. The last chapter really is just so impressive, I must say. This is where I was just completely awestruck by your the number of sources that you analyze and, and you really analyze so many and and I think that most people would see them almost as unrelated but what you do is you show this common thread of how these sources all have a trope that you call the if Aristotle were alive motif and and it really does work very well um, it's just a beautiful gem of a chapter so would you explain for us how these texts posit the question, if Aristotle were alive, and how that same motif will be used to suit really various needs of the authors, including Galileo. So let me start by pointing out something. You're absolutely right that the text analyzing this chapter can appear unrelated to one another. Uh, On one side, this also happens because uh, humanities are fantastic because they're interdisciplinary. And when uh, friends of mine heard that I was preparing this chapter, there was this very virtuous contest uh, in looking for sources that might be useful for my chapter. (laughs) So I'm glad that I've also involved my friends uh, in this sort of uh, uh, crazy pursuit. But this is also uh, what allowed me to present uh, the treatment of this expression in so many different contexts. So I I take this opportunity to thank uh, these friends of mine who helped throughout the process. But yes, uh, about uh, uh, your question and about how this expression was used. So I call it the if Aristotle motive uh, because uh, uh, 
it's the normal formulation in which we find it. And, and the idea is that we have a sort of counterfactual imagining according to which Aristotle would be back from, the, from death and once confronted with modern times, he would need to reconsider his ideas. And of course, this could bring Aristotle to marry different agendas. But it's also, in rhetorical terms, a very felicitous expression because uh, Aristotle is dead. He cannot really uh, take a position, but nonetheless, I can invoke him and his authority to support my own idea. It's very easy to, for me to say if Aristotle were alive, he would say I'm right. <laughs> no one can contradict that. So it's, uh, it's really a, a useful expression and very efficacious uh, in rhetorical terms. And we find it applied in different contexts. Some of them uh, you, you can, of course, expect. So if you have authors who want to prove uh, that Aristotle is a good guy, uh, they will try to show that if Aristotle were alive today, uh, it would convert to Christian faith. This is normally what we find in uh, Jesuit philosophers, for example, in uh, authors writing within uh, institutionalized milieu like the university. There is the interest by using this expression to show that uh, Aristotle would be one of us, basically, and uh, he would admit his error in fact of fate, but aside from that, uh, it's good to go. We, we don't uh, trash anything of Aristotle. The only things he would need to change would be actually his uh, religious allegiance. But uh, more interestingly, uh, but again, th th these are examples you can expect. But I find uh, deliciously twisted, the, uh, the fact that this very expression is used by authors who are actively anti-Aristotelian. Galileo is one of them. And uh, why do they use this expression? Why do they want really to receive the endorsement of uh, this Aristotle back from death? Because by doing that, Aristotle, not simply with his authority, is supporting their agendas, but is also saying, look, I was wrong. So completely diffusing the attacks made by the opponents of these philosophers, scientists, thinkers, who were trying to go against the traditional teachings of the school. And when I say the word tradition, I'm not using it by chance. Because, of course, in the moment in which you invoke Aristotle and in the moment in which you want Aristotle's blessing, you are also showing that you are respectful of tradition. No one can accuse you of being a, sub a, subserv a subversive of any kind. So it really works. And paradoxically, it works better for these authors who are going against uh, the Aristotelian uh, paradigm. So it works very well precisely for those who are working actively to uh, cancel uh, what has been uh, the Aristotelian system of teaching and uh, the Aristotelian interpretation of the world. So this is the delicious paradox, I think, uh, at the bottom of the use of this expression. 
And I had a lot of fun working on the case of Galileo because when, in many other authors, the expression is used as a rhetorical device, Galileo gives this expression a strong content founded on uh, the Aristotelian text and is showing that Aristotle was waiting for being corrected. <laughs> he, he sees the opportunity. And what uh, Galileo is saying is uh, Aristotle will welcome me as the best of his scholar of, of, of his students, uh, and he would reject instead these uh, stupid, obtuse, self-declared peripateticians who haven't understood uh, the real spirit of uh, his philosophy. So it, it, it's extremely fascinating. And again, uh, this expression is not used exclusively in this kind of uh, philosophical, scientific context. But I found interesting also to investigate its applications uh, in, uh, fi- in, in, in the field of philology, for example, when discussing uh, uh, the correct uh, version or translation of or interpretation of a text. And in the final section of the chapter, instead, uh, its application in the literary world, which is very interesting because Aristotle's poetics is a, is a late bloomer in terms of Aristotelian text to obtain circulation and recognition. And this is why this uh, um, uh, use of the If Aristotle Were Alive applied to uh, the context of uh, the poetics and literary text will enjoy a longer life. We still find it, for example, in uh, the... 18th century. Mm-hmm. Well, I have to say your passion for the Galilean texts was, it really comes through and uh, you can tell how much you enjoy writing about it. And I must say, because I was very convinced too, I said, yes, Galileo's right uh, <laughs> as I was reading. Um, but what I found particularly effective about Galileo's approach and then your analysis of it was that, and, and you sort of alluded to this already, is that Galileo is specifically referring to the Aristotelian method of, of sensate science, right? So of observation through the senses. And that that is why, were he to have the telescope or were, to, were he to have had the telescope, that he would agree with Galileo. I guess this was on the immutability of the heavens, but I, I just, it just sounded like such reasonable and wonderful philosophy. I mean, it, it makes Galileo Galileo, right? And, and your, and your, and your passion for it was, was really obvious. So. Well, you, 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 you know, I mean, Galileo is from Pisa, I'm from Florence, so <laughs> there should be some conflict. But the, 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 the great thing about Galileo is that uh, when he writes something, he always does it for a reason. It, it's never dullness. Uh, it, th- there is a point in what he's saying. And uh, the real epiphany for me in his case was realizing that he uses this expression, if Aristotle were alive several times, and he always uses it in the same context. So at that point, once you once I have identified that pattern, of course, it was very exciting. It was just a matter to understand what he was doing. And uh, of course, he had very clear ideas and uh, not by chance, in my opinion, is the author who uses the expression 
in the most effective way? Well, you know, I, I, this is a great way to conclude, I think. I've, I've just taken Galileo, such a, a wonderful way to end, and I see that I've taken a lot of your time. But I would like, before we finish, if you want to tell us about what you're working on next. So, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I'll tell you this, of course, there are a number of small projects which are related to the book and that uh, I am bringing now to completion. Uh, one of them is indeed about the teaching of Platonism uh, in the schools. Uh, I have a volume, uh, an edited volume coming out about, uh, again, the relationship between Plato and Aristotle in the early modern period, but, uh, um, and other tiny Aristotelian things, but my husband is begging me enough with this Aristotle. <laughs> so <laughs> I want to make him happy. I want to comply, is right. And uh, I have two projects that uh, I'm uh, currently developing. One is uh, related to my first book on Portia and is about uh, love sickness uh, in the Aristotelian milieu. Uh, normally philosophy of love is uh, seen through the platonic lens and I was interested in uh, into looking it uh, from uh, the Aristotelian side uh, and especially in the, the period of counter-reformation. And, uh, but the main project uh, I would like to develop uh, and again uh, is uh, in a certain way going back uh, to my book on Porcio is uh, writing a monograph on the intellectual life uh, in uh, late uh, 17th century, early 18th century Naples. Uh, it's something I was thinking about for a long time. Uh, there are amazing things in the Neapolitan archives that are still waiting to be explored. And uh, I also would like uh, uh, to make uh, uh, these centuries, which have been a quite forgotten, especially in the American university milieu, more known and appreciated. And especially a city like Naples that in those very decades was certainly the most avant-garde city in the entire peninsula from an intellectual point of view. Wow. Well, that, that sounds fascinating. And you'll have the wonderful chance to work in Naples now. Oh, tell me about <laughs> it. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, Ava, this has been a real pleasure. So thank you so much for joining us. And we look forward to these next, what looks like, two projects. So. Yeah. And thank you so much, Gary. This was lovely. Thank you for having me. And uh, it was a pleasure speaking with you. And uh, uh, I very thankful for this opportunity.